Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the JMO Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Michaels, and our guest this week, we've got Josh Johnson from Williston, North Dakota. Now, if you look at Williston on the map in west northwestern uh, North Dakota, you realize he's pretty close to the west end of Sakakawea. He does spend a lot of time there, as we learned in this interview, but he also spends a whole bunch of time out on Fort Peck. Now, Josh, uh, for those of you that may have heard heard of him, he goes by Fish Cast Angling on social media and YouTube. He makes some great YouTube content, very educational. Uh, he also guides part time, and you know, gets into the occasional walleye tournament, uh, both uh, you know Sakakawea and Fort Peck. Most notably, very notably, the last couple of years, getting multiple runner-up finishes in the Montana Governor's Cup walleye tournament. Last year, or this past year, in 2023, Josh and his partner Cody Rowland weighed 103.78 pounds. That's that's 10 fish. That's over a 10-pound average, uh, and that was good enough for second place. So that just lets you know the quality uh, of the fish coming out of Fort Peck. We've talked about it before. Uh, this is not the first interview uh, revolving around big fish on Fort Peck. Uh, but really, you know, the, the theme for this interview, you know, and Josh... Uh, not that long ago, you know, I didn't know really much about Josh, but people close to him wrote into the show and said, you got to look into this guy. You know, he might be a good fit for this show. And, and I'm really glad I did because just a little bit, you know, like I said, social media, look him up on YouTube, watch some of his content. You realize he's really fishy. He's definitely got his own recipe for success in terms of just his stuff and how he operates. And and uh, it was really fun to get to know him personally in this interview. I know everybody's going to be very entertained and, and enjoy the stories. Josh is definitely a very fishy guy, and he uh, is very self-taught, self-made individual. He's earned every every bit of skill that he has on his own. And, uh, you know, the, the tournament stories are just fantastic. Uh, but also you realize when you look him up really quickly, you realize that he's very much in tune with his electronics and he's very good with forward sonar and he's definitely one of the top dogs he's one of the leaders out on fort peck hunting down and finding these giant individual fish out there in the summertime and that's what i spend you know the back end of this interview we get to know josh and we get to know what makes him tick we get to know how he's learned uh the things that he has learned and we talk all about it uh, but he has some great insight and some great recommendations for, you know, his recipe for success uh, coming from his experience when it comes to the forward sonar thing and the giant, giant four peck walleye. So very fun, very entertaining, uh, very fun, very entertaining interview here. Getting to know a new person, Josh Johnson from Williston, North Dakota. Let's get to it. The fishing opportunities across the state of Montana are phenomenal. If you're from there or you've already been there a bunch to experience it, you know just how special these opportunities are. If you haven't, fishing out west should absolutely be on your bucket list. But aquatic invasive species like zebra mussels and Eurasian water milfoil can harm recreational opportunities. As boaters, as anglers, we have the ability to help protect Montana's waters by cleaning all mud, plants and debris off our boat, recreational equipment, and fishing gear before we leave any access sites. Drain the water from your motor, your live well, your bilges, and allow your boat and equipment time to dry before your next outing. No matter what watercraft you use, please, if you're traveling in the state of Montana, stop at all inspection stations. Together, we can protect Montana's waters. Visit the link in the description of this podcast for more information. That's fwp.mt.com 
www.ohio.gov backslash AIS. Anyways, Josh, this is the first time having you on. So to start this off, I want to hear about you. I want to kind of establish your story a little bit. So tell me about yourself, man. Going way back to the beginning, what do I need to know about you that makes you you as an angler? The short story is, you know, a lot of anglers have a couple of loose screws in the head. And those screws came loose in my head pretty early. And I I think they've been long gone for a long time. So, um, you know, growing up, I grew up in the Twin Cities, Minnesota region. Um, You know, my father, uh, he was, you know, very much into fishing. I introduced, you know, me to it at a very young age. Um, something I'm very thankful for to this day, um, the time that he invested in me. And, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I was getting slimed up by fish when I was in diapers. Um, now, that being said, like, you know, where I grew up and, like, my fishing situation growing up, we didn't really have fancy equipment. You know, the majority of fishing I did with my dad was out of a, you know, 17-foot grumman canoe, actually. Um, you know, lots of bass fish around the Twin Cities, just small little lakes. You know, lots of time with a scum frog and the lily pads um you know in the summers we go out to montana um visit my grandparents did a lot of shore fishing for you know trout on the yellowstone river up in the boulder mountains out in the crazy mountains and uh yeah just uh you know pursuing fishing as much as possible with what we had and um yeah you know i'd say about the time that i was oh probably 12 or 13 years old i got really head over heels into it um like Back in the day, I remember just wanting to eat up, wanting to eat up fishing information as much as possible. And back in the day, we didn't have YouTube and everything else, um, you know. But back in the day, for me, um, I'm 35 now. But when I was 12 years old, I'd go down to the public library and check out about every in fisherman magazine and video there was at the store, um, you know. And I, I would watch those videos so much that um, to this day, my mom could probably quote Al Linder and Ron Linder and <laughs> right you know all, all, all those guys. So definitely something i ate up you know from a very young age and um you know as we continue on like so as i was about to go to college you know it's kind of like what next and at that time to be honest i just kind of wanted to be a pro bass fisherman. I mean, you know i thought i was all special out there in a canoe all day you know fishing frog baits and lily pads you know not really sure what i wanted to be but i knew i wanted to be something fish related i love fish i love fishing i love the science behind it i loved the management every aspect so ended up going to college at the University of Wisconsin Stevens Point for fisheries management. And when I was there, you know, I spent, uh, you know, quite a bit of time studying fish and a lot of time fishing and, uh, you know, really just immersed in that whole lifestyle of, you know, studying fish, fishing every chance I could. Um, you know, like, for example, first muskie I ever caught was on a fly rod, which I did intentionally. It was actually um, me and my buddy Tom Lima. We got up at like 4.30 in the morning um, before my last final um, my sophomore sophomore year of college and uh waited out there got a muskie on the fly rod went back finished up my last final you know finished up for the year so every chance i got i was out fishing on the water studying fish um that's what it was all about for me you know i, ma- I majored in fisheries management um worked for the minnesota dnr as an intern out of brainerd walker park rapids minnesota um i'd spend pretty much all my days either you know pulling gill nets doing surveys doing fish research projects. My evenings, I'd spend fishing on the water. Um, you know, and in between uh, college and these internships, eventually graduated with my fisheries management degree, um, you know, continued on. And, uh, you know, um, once my last summer internship was up, it was kind of like, well, what's next here? And I really need to make up some money that I spent in college and, and everything else. And I've been hearing about the oil fields out in North Dakota. 
long story short, I drove out here in my little Ford Ranger, got a job in the oil fields, and uh, one thing led to another. I would have never dreamed of, you know, really living and working out in North Dakota, but, um, you know, it, uh, it, it, it panned out, and I got a pretty cool rotational schedule job at the moment where I work eight days on, six days off. Gives me a good opportunity in, to invest in some family time, some fishing time, and, um, you know, at this point, I, you know, I, I am full-time in the oil fields, but I also guide part-time on the side, um, both on Sakakawi and Fort Peck, you know, just uh, taking every chance I can to spend time on the water, learn as much as I can about the fish, the fisheries, and, you know, share my passion with those around me. Yeah, man, you're just like a fish head. You're just, you know, like you said, there's just no two, like, super like hardcore anglers have the same story. Like there's no template, there's no textbook version of how you get into the industry and just be wild about fishing. It just takes weirdos, you know, to just be obsessed. And, uh, and, and that's really like a lot of the best success stories or whether it's tournament anglers guides, you know, just like you, you gotta be a, a sort of a glutton for, you know, sort of that personal punishment, you know, you make all the sacrifices for time and sleep and, you know, studying for your last final sophomore year. But it's like, you know, uh, to, to get every second of fishing in, is just, um, yeah, man, it just takes those special individuals. So I can appreciate your story a ton. And I like, uh, you know, I like the variety. I like that you come from variety and, you know, you, you know, the humble beginnings of fishing, uh, you know, fishing the shallow bass out of a canoe, um, you know, gosh, you were probably, you probably caught all kinds of fish. You had your hands on all kinds of fish that, uh, you know, some kids that were, you know, their dads had a big ranger and were driving around, uh, they were probably driving past all kinds of fish and, and struggling every day. So, I mean, it's, there's a lot to appreciate there. That's, that's really, really good stuff, man. And, um, but yeah, I mean, you talk about, you talk about, uh, you know, where you're at today, you do some guide trips and, you know, we haven't really mentioned it yet, but you know, you, you fish some of the local tournaments. I kind of want to kind of want to dive into that part of, of, you know, looking at the last, you know, three or four years of, of your fishing career. Let's dive into that a little bit because I want to kind of figure out what makes you tick and what some of your specialties are. Um, you know, so along those lines, like, you know, what, what would you say, how would you describe your fishing style? What do you spend most of your time on now? Well, you know, kind of like I was hinting at earlier, I mean, like most of my life, I, you know, gave it my all, uh, you know, fishing with whatever means I had possible, whether it was a canoe, wade fishing, etc. You know, it's probably about eight years ago, really, when I actually got my first larger boat um, and started diving into, you know, utilizing more quality electronics. Like, honestly, like my first probably lake trout, walleye, smallie, pike, etc. on peck probably came out of a 14-foot aluminum boat that was like chock full of holes just about. And I had a Vexlar fish finder. Um, you know, that was probably about 10 years ago. Fast forward to today, you know, the last over the last eight years, I've really been diving into like a little bit bigger boats, technology, stuff like that. You know, today I got, you know, five graphs on my boat, three live scope units. Um, you know, ultimately like I was just as much of a fisherman back when I was wade fishing as I am now when I with a big fancy boat and electronics, ultimately like fishing is about the pursuit and about the heart behind it. And I think, you know, it's not to get lost in like the fact that like, you know, a person doesn't need technology to enjoy fishing at a high level. Um, you know, but that being said, hey, today that's where I'm at in terms of like using those tools and those efficiencies to better my time on the water. So 
in terms of like kind of if you want to call it moving from like more of the canoe style bank style sight fishing shallow water fishing to more offshore you know electronic technical fishing i really feel like a lot of my roots are very much in smallmouth fishing at fort peck um so fort peck and big smallies were on my mind and heart like big time when i first started getting into like a little bit bigger boat that i thought i could run around peck with um and i remember fishing a montana bass nature it was just an NBA tournament, actually. Um, a guy named Zach dropped like 29 some pounds on the scale for five fish. I'm like, dude, this is unreal. And <laughs> uh, like, I want to figure out how to catch fish like that and bigger. Um, so, you know, I was like, you know, I just remember really investing hours and hours and hours um, trying to learn my gear. And for most of my life, I fished very hard. I've had lots of good buddies that fish, but not necessarily a lot of mentors that had like bigger boats, fancy electronics, things like that. Um, the good and the bad of that, that is I didn't necessarily learn as quickly, but I had to learn it on my own um, with a lot of button pushing, a lot of playing around, a lot of tinkering. And I think in the long run, um, you know, I think somebody that really puts in their own time in terms of like tinkering with settings, investing a lot of time on the water and really being more focused on like understanding the fish, the environment and how to use their electronics and like combine that all together to then make yourself more efficient on the water. Um you know, so that's really what I was pursuing. A lot of that came with a lot of hard work, a lot of, uh, you know, <laughs> late nights, uh, sleeping on the lake. I mean, I've probably slept on the lake more than you can count just for spending more time on the water, uh, trying to, like, learn things, save money. Uh, something that I was just really, like, you know, diving into. Um, but, yeah, you know, I think, uh, you know, in terms of, like, for me, once it really clicked, you know, in terms of, like, for example, utilizing mapping in my electronics to find patterns and run patterns. And I remember, like, even specifically, there was a time I was on Sakakui fishing for smallmouth. And I realized that, like, as I ran down the bank, and when you'd find areas on the shoreline with a wood and gravel mix, you could target those areas and catch smallies. So once I realized that and realized that I could develop a pattern, I'd start, you know, leaving lots of dead water to find productive water. And in doing that, you know, I just run miles and miles and miles of like what I thought was less productive water to find these sweet spots that I was using visually, you know, with my eyes on the bank, you know, that wooden gravel, for example, to then pull in, target those kind of spots. Um, you know, that's something I was doing visually. Eventually, I think something that really clicked and really helped me a lot was when I was able to harness underwater mapping and my electronics to do similar things. You know, I think mapping to this day is probably one of the most like the biggest game changers in fishing and electronics. I think there's a lot of like, you know, hype over live scope and like unfair advantages, things like that. But honestly, like mapping to me is one of the most critical things to like study and understand and to have the proper mapping for each body of water. For example, like at any, any moment in time on Sakakawi or Fort Peck, I'll have Lake Master up, Navionics up. A lot of times I'm using my Dr. Sonar satellite imagery. Um, and I think really like, understanding mapping and understanding that, hey, the shape of a point can indicate the kind of cover types that are on that point or like the proximity to deep water, you know, the, you know, for like, I remember the longest time back in the day, I'd look for like rock piles for smallies. And I thought I had a side image for like miles and miles and miles to find these rock piles. Um, where ultimately what I ended up finding out was that like a lot of times if you find a high spot on the end of a point that you just see on your contour map, most of the time that's there and that's indicative of hard bottom 
usually rock. So once I was able to key in on that, recognize shapes on the map, um, and then find those on the map, I could run right to them, side scan them, find the rock pile, bingo, you know, just like that. So like, as you begin to like really harness mapping and utilize it to its fullest advantage, I feel like that's when you can become really deadly because you're not just out there like looking for fishing reports, looking for other anglers, but you're really able to find and pattern your own fish and constantly fish new water that you may have never even fished before. The fishing opportunities across the state of Montana are phenomenal. If you're from there or you've already been there a bunch to experience it, you know just how special these opportunities are. If you haven't, fishing out west should absolutely be on your bucket list. But aquatic invasive species like zebra mussels and Eurasian water milfoil can harm recreational opportunities. As boaters, as anglers, we have the ability to help protect Montana's waters by cleaning all mud, plants and debris off our boat, recreational equipment, and fishing gear before we leave any access sites. Drain the water from your motor, your live well, your bilges, and allow your boat and equipment time to dry before your next outing. No matter what watercraft you use, please, if you're traveling in the state of Montana, stop at all inspection stations. Together, we can protect Montana's waters. Visit the link in the description of this podcast for more information. That's fwp.mt. .gov backslash AIS. Talking about your style, I get the I get the sense that you're definitely a structure fisherman. Like how you know, continuing on along those lines, like what is it about structure or how you utilize structure that just is in your wheelhouse or gives you that that confidence? Well, once again, you know, I mean, like I said, I think offshore structure fishing has really become my thing, whether it's smallmouth, walleye, lakers, et cetera. Um, you know, like I said, once again, I feel like what really kicked it off in terms of like the confidence level was the ability. Because like with these reservoir systems, like and that's to kind of back up with reservoir systems, you know, the way that the cover types lay out, um, it can become very predictable, like I said, based off the shapes of the points. So like just I think in terms of my confidence level structure to me and like when it comes I, you know i do some guiding and a lot of people come to me and they're very curious about like offshore fishing like they'll see some of my videos like man you're out in the middle of the lake what are you doing out there you know and to me it's not difficult um but it took a while to get there because i think the hardest thing for most anglers is at least for me i feel like when i'm offshore fishing i need to develop for myself a visual so when i'm offshore that visual could be a waypoint uh, that could be a, a piece of structure. Now that structure could be 20 foot under the water, but like, I think it's very important to give yourself visuals. So that's where even like stepping back, like before the whole live scope thing, understanding mapping, understanding 2d, understanding your GPS, how to lay waypoints, how to know how far you are from your waypoint. Like for example, most of my waypoints I run on, on my hummingbirds because Lake master mapping is really accurate and shallower out here. So like, for example, I'll run proximity flags. So, Let's just say I'm fishing a rock pile, whether it be for walleye or smallmouth. I want to mark out that rock pile. I want to know exactly how far I am from that rock pile. I want to be lined up. I want to make a cast where I know that I'm confident in hitting that rock pile. Um, you know, I think when you give yourself those visuals, which for me, I mean, it's literally just waypoints, but it's waypoints and a structure that I found in the middle lake that I'm confident should be holding fish. Because I think that's the hardest thing with offshore structure fishing is to like have confidence, like, 
casting out in the middle of nowhere. So you have to give yourself something as a visual to give yourself the confidence to fish it effectively to catch the fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now let's now let's get into the specifically like your forward sonar. You know, sure. you know, t- let's talk about that portion of your career and talk about the evolution of that. Um, you know, when you got it for the first time, what some of your first experiences were like, what your, you know, what you were kind of imagining it would do for you. Sure. Um, well, for starters, it's, it's kind of interesting because even from like when I was a real, real young kid, I was always like very intrigued by suspended fish. I actually remember back in the day, me and my dad would be largemouth bass fishing on these little lakes at home and we'd be fishing a weed line or lily pads. And all of a sudden out in the middle of the lake, you see these bluegill dimpling up on the surface so we'd throw, like, our Texas rig lizards up at this, like, these bluegill dimpling on the surface over, like, 20 foot of water. They'd sink down about three foot, and we'd get hammered. So I'm like, well, what the heck? <laughs> you know, all these, all these, you know, big fish out in the middle of nowhere. So, like, my whole life I've had a lot of intrigue over, like, offshore suspended fish. Like, to the point where, like, when I was younger, I'd be out in the middle of the lake ice fishing in, like, the Twin Cities metro like five foot down over 40 foot of water. Like nobody in their right mind was doing that. And I didn't catch squat. I'm going to be honest, <laughs> you know, but right there was something in me that wanted to pursue those fish that nobody was like, like those mystical fish. So to me, that was always very intriguing to me. Um, so, you know, something like live scope comes around or, you know, panoptics at the time, that was something like, dude, this is like my style. Like I got to get my hands on this. Um, you know, it didn't happen instantly. It didn't necessarily, you know, didn't always have the funds for it and whatnot, but, you know, about four years ago, I did drop some coin on it. And, um, you know, I actually remember the first time I really jumped out there and used it. I was on Fort Peck in uh, Gilbert Bay, actually, looking for smallmouth. And I remember, like, the first time I was out there, I was with my buddy, Matt Doyle. We're looking around and, like, really just gawking at, like, what we were looking at. Like, to be honest, like, the first probably week that I used it, I probably caught less fish because of uh, just staring at the screen. And not even really knowing how to use it, but just being mesmerized, really, by what we were seeing on the screen. Um, you know, so it went from there to then, <laughs> you know, figuring out, like, hey, this is where it's pointed. This is my lure. This is the fish. This is how they're relating. But, you know, to me, it was really opening up, you know, not only new fishing opportunities, but for me, as somebody who's always been really interested in learning about the fish, their environment, I mean, just the curiosity and the intrigue behind that was, I mean, just mind-boggling to me. So, um, you know, talk to me about what you feel like you've you're dialing in. Talk to me about you know some of the experiences that you had along you know the last three or four years with Forward Sonar since you had it, where you know some real light bulbs were going off and you really had some things dialed. Um, you feel like utilizing it specifically. Yeah, I mean, I'd say a lot of the bites that I'm tapping into with Live Scope were actually bites that I was tapping into pre Live Scope. On uh, a lot of things that I had theories on, but then next thing you know, you're putting the spotlight on these fish, you know what I'm saying, with the forward facing oh, yeah. and confirming what's going on. So, and, and, you know, on top of that, just becoming that much more efficient with the whole process. Um, but, you know, trying to think back as far as like, you know, certain bites and this and that, I mean, ultimately, I think with live scope, like it's just another tool, tool in the toolbox to make you more efficient. Um, you know, as far as like, you know, life altering, <laughs> you know, fish altering, you know, crazy experiences. I mean, I'd say, um, like I said, I was really kind of like trying to force and tap into some of the suspended bites previously, but it's really opened my eyes. And actually, okay. So actually one of the coolest things 
that I honestly say I've learned from live scope related to walleye. This is going to sound kind of funny, but I almost owe walleye an apology because, like, back in the day, man, I was such – I mean, I'd give walleye such a hard time about being lazy, um, you know, just kind of these, like, bottom dwellers. I mean, now, I knew that they'd come up and suspend this and that, but, like, one thing I've learned through live scope, particularly on, like, Peck and Sakakuya, they have some of the most violent, aggressive strikes of any fish swimming in the lake, I swear. Um, for example, I think a lot of people on Peck – think of like lake trout and their exciting strikes how aggressive they can be i would say day in day out i'm fishing for walleye more aggressively than i am the lakers and the walleye actually put up more um unbelievably exhilarating strikes than the lakers are um (laughs) you know and that's actually probably been the biggest eye-opener for me is just how aggressive and how what it takes to really trip the trigger of some of these walleye and how unbelievably exciting it is to view these strikes on live scope on top of it so you know, and the other big conversation, um, that, you know, when you talk about targeting bigger fish, I mean, you know, again, I haven't even really specified, but you definitely, you know, you're fishing bodies of water with big fish in them. We talk about peck, we talk about the walleyes, um, you know, targeting big fish. A lot of these fish aren't schooled up in big schools, so you're hunting down individual fish or, or you know, yep. smaller wolf packs. Talk to me about you know, uh, you know, how forward sonar has made you more efficient? Because like you said, I think when a lot of people get it, they it, they kind of take a step backwards in the efficiency category. And, and now and we're all just excited to stare at the screen and see fish. And it kind of slows us down. And, and it doesn't show, you doesn't, you know, it, it's not, it's not something that just, you know, fish don't jump in your boat because you have it all of a sudden. Sure. So yep. talk, talk to me about how you utilize forward sonar now to be more efficient and breaking down water and, you know, at the end of the day, getting more of these bigger bites. Fort Peck specifically, it's definitely a low-density walleye fishery on average. Uh, live scope is a definitely a, a, a huge efficiency factor on Peck. Um, you know, when it comes to, like, you know, trying to use live scope and let's just say peck specifically, like in terms of trying to be efficient. Um, one thing that I do that I think um, can be tricky for some anglers, I spend a lot of time leaving fish to find the right fish. Um, for example, I, you know, let's just say I'm practicing for a tournament on peck. I might find lots and lots and lots of spots. I may not even fish them worth anything, but I'm just visually looking for fish, find all these spots. And when it comes to like, tournament time or just fun fishing time whatever it might be um because just because i drop the troll motor in the water and i see a fish doesn't mean that i cast at it um you know i think you want to be observant of what's going on but there's a lot of times where like i'm looking for fish set up in like a specific manner for example on peck if you can find pairs or three of them together i think your odds are definitely going to go up but additionally like if you start moving into a spot and you see fish and you're pitching at fish they're not eating I think one of the biggest things that's hard for people to do is just to leave that fish. Um, you know, and I think something that's very critical is taking a lot of time to break down the spot, know the sweet spots. Like, let's just say you're fishing, you know, inside turn or point, and let's just say there's a big boulder on the end of the point. Know where that big boulder is. And a lot of times if you're working fish that aren't biting, a lot of times I'll actually just leave those fish so that I can progress towards that big boulder. And it seems like a lot of times your biters are set up on sweet spots. So a lot of times, like, I think the tendency with live scope is to get so caught up in what you're, like, what's right in front of you 
that it becomes hard to leave those fish to find other fish. And you need to have the confidence that like, when they're ready to bite, they're going to bite. And when they're not going to bite, I mean, you know, some of these fish can take a lot of repetition, but I think it's very important to keep moving to be efficient. Even if you're seeing fish, it doesn't mean that every fish that you're going to see is in the same mood. So like a lot of times, if you move towards a sweet spot on a piece of structure or you look for fish that might be potted up, you now a pot on pet could be two or it could be three or, <laughs> you know, if you're lucky yeah. four or five, but like, I mean, you're throwing at a lot of individual fish and like, that is the cool thing on peck is it's like definitely one of the ultimate showdowns between you and the fish. It's like literally a face off, um, which is a very cool experience on live scope. Um, but if that fish isn't eating, I think it's very important to not get so caught up in trying to like catch that fish all day, but to try to find dumb fish. I mean, I'm all about trying to find dumb fish. Um, right you know, on. and you know, the other thing too. So like, let's just say in terms of an approach, uh, on peck specifically, let's just say there's a spot that I'm fishing that sets up more like a flat where the fish they're there. There could be even quite a few of them. They could be mingling around, but let's just say there's been kind of a good morning bite. I might set up on that spot in the morning where you have a lot of targets and you can pitch at a lot of fish and there may not be as much of a sweet spot, but there's just a lot of fish mingling and active. Now, as the day, you know, slows down, maybe the bite gets tougher. A lot of times at that point, I like to go to like much smaller pieces of structure with like a big bowler on the end of a point or a stump that like they specifically like, and I'll target those specific pieces of cover. Now, when it comes to like, I'm, I'm fishing the fish, like, but I go straight for that cover and I might even bypass certain fish on the way to that fish, because it seems like those fish that are set up on cover on the sweet spot have a tendency to bite, you know, we're like other times, you know, if you're just on a big flat, like some of those fish might start getting a little bit finicky, but it seems like if you can target sweet spots, you know, kind of find the spot on the spot. That's the way to get them to go when it's getting kind of tough. Right on. I think that's phenomenal advice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, talking about presentations, we got to spend at least a little bit of time talking presentations. You know, with the forward sonar specifically, has that changed, you know, your presentation selection tremendously? I mean, are you learning things? Are you having experiences that you know, or maybe changing your mind or have changed your mind on some things or giving you, you know, a whole bunch more confidence in something specifically. Like, like talk to me about the evolution of, you know, sort of your presentation confidences uh, along paralleling, you know, that same time frame when LiveScope became part of your life. You know, I'd say ultimately I'm fishing a lot of similar methods, but the efficiency at which I'm fishing those has gone through the roof. Um, and you're able to see on a much quicker level when those fish react, how they react, and then respond accordingly. So, for example, when it comes to suspended fish or just fish in general, like I feel like a huge, huge key is drop rate. Um, so let's just say, you know, I've been talking a lot about peck. You know, we can, glide baits are a popular live scope item. There's plenty of other baits as well. But, like, when it comes to, like, you know, reading the fish, reading how they react and, like, how I react with my lure choice. Um, a lot of it depends on the fish. Like, let's just say I pitch out at a fish and that fish shoots up off the bottom and catches it. Like it shoots up 12 foot off the bottom and catches it on the way down. Um, typically in those situations, like let's just say you're, we're using glide baits. So I've actually taken a lot of time to like test various glide baits and like literally time their drops. So like, for example, I spent a, a few hours on a lake this summer, literally just testing drop rates, which depending on your, your water temp, water conditions it can all vary a little bit your line diameter everything but like let's just say you have like a johnny darter number nine 
you know, in like 22 foot of water, um, that thing will drop to in 22 foot of water in about 3.2 seconds, where a jigging wrap number nine could take about 4.6 seconds. So like that drop rate is critical in terms of like the fish and how they react and the, and the bait that I'm going to choose to then feed them. So for example, if the fish tend to want to like shoot up for the bait, I prefer to have something that's got a little bit slower drop and a glidier action. A jigging wrap number nine, for example, definitely fits that bill um, in terms of its drop rate as compared to like a faster Johnny darter. So if I, I see those fish shooting up and wanting to grab it and catch it up over their head, I want a bait that drops a little bit slower. And that jigging wrap number nine, um, it definitely gets this glidey action that, you know, it kind of almost like has like a natural, like even on a slack line, kind of a pendulum style action that those fish that are looking up that want to eat up love. But let's just say those fish aren't shooting up off the bottom and they're wanting to like let it shoot past them and grab it off the bottom. Well, let's just say with a jigging wrap number nine, maybe they start nipping at it. What I found is that actually if you increase the drop rate, sometimes those fish that are watching it shoot past them, chasing it to the bottom and then nipping, will actually start to choke a bait if you actually increase the drop rate. So depending on how they react is how I select, you know, my, my primary lure choice. You know, if they tend to shoot up off the bottom, typically I'm actually slowing my drop rate or I might just work it up over the head, you know, and never even let it get to the bottom. Um, we're like, if the, if I'm letting it drop past the fish, you know, they're letting it get past them, but then they're nipping at it. A lot of times I'll actually pick up my drop rate to try to like increase the, you know, rate of fall. And it seems like a lot of times you turn those nippers into like fish that, you know, bite it really well. Do you have any like setup preferences? Like, are you particular about your setups, even like outside of, you know, you're, you're already talking about, you know, you, you have a great understanding of fall rates on these on the different glide baits, um, does that change up your setups at all? Like, do you, do, you, do you have a bunch of rods laying on the front deck? Like, what's that like for you? Well, you know, when it comes to bait selection, you know, I'm, I'm kind of trending, you know, towards hockey, you know, a little bit deeper and a little bit more glide bait related, a little bit more fork pack focused. But, like, you know, when it comes to bait selection, um, you know, it, it really, like, once you start getting over about 15, 20 foot of water, you know, and you're talking summer walleyes, glide baits are definitely a thing. I mean, at the same point, I'm mixing in a lot of, you know, jigs and plastics, this and that. But, like, um, in situations where you might be fishing 20 foot and less, like, specifically 15 foot and less, the amount of options you have opens up, to me at least, dramatically. Um, and let, let's just say, so, like, let's just say August or September on Fort Peck, I'm typically fishing 20 foot and deeper, um, which is where glide baits really shine. I mean, on top of that, I've been fishing a lot of like, you know, lately I've been fishing a one ounce machine lure work smelt head with a five and three quarter inch um, finesse fish, actually, which I think to a lot of people would actually be a fairly sizable presentation. It's about, it's almost a six inch bait. And actually going back to just like, you know, tripping the trigger of fish that might be like a little bit inactive. So something that I found like, you know, in terms of like adjusting your drop rate to like, you know, adjust for like how the fish are biting or, you know, interested or not interested something that I found is like upsizing your presentation can at times get fish to come unglued that don't even move for a smaller presentation. Um, and interestingly for me going bigger has actually been more effective for me smack dab in the middle of the afternoon when they're not reacting to glide baits, like your typical, like, you know, three inch glide bait. Um, so that's just kind of another little tip there. It's, uh, the, the head that I'm using, it's actually kind of a prototype that's in the works right now. It should be coming out this fall. But it's a one ounce machining smelt head with a five and three quarter inch finesse fish tail. Like I said, it's almost 
almost a six inch bait. I mean, it's twice the size of most glide baits. And it's very interesting because like at times you think when they're not aggressive that you would actually like kind of do the opposite and downsize. All right. But in this instance, I've actually upsized and then those fish come unglued and move for baits and just like literally choke them when they won't even move for a glide bait, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, presentation, stuff like that, it's kind of getting off, off subject here, but like, especially when it comes to like fishing 15 foot of water and less, your options open up a lot. And a glide bait, I think there's a lot of magic in a glide bait in terms of like that side to side darting action. And one of the coolest baits to me, especially if you're under 15, 20 foot of water, is a jerk bait. And on Sakakawea, um, you know, on Sakakawea, there's really kind of like two styles of bites. You got like a deep smell bite, you know, we're like right now, middle of summer, they're going to be, you know, the smelts are going to be out below the thermocline during the middle of the day. Um, they're kind of light sensitive bait fish, but in the mornings and the evenings, they're going to tend to rise up kind of in those middle depth areas. But anyways, you got fish that are related to deep smelt. Those fish can be really deep. At the same point, there's another bite going on in the shallows that's very much related to like emerald shiners or young deer white bass, uh, stuff like that. And like under 15 foot of water, when they get on the shiners, they suspend like crazy. Like a lot of them halfway down or a third of the way down the water column. And a jerk bait is an unbelievable tool, just unbelievable, you know, for getting these fish to react. Cause it seems like with those shiners, they're really like looking up and that side to side action of a jerk bait. I mean, is a really deadly, deadly, you know, tool to mix in. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of setups, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm super particular. I mean, personally, like the rod that I use, I mean, <laughs> it's almost going to get too complicated because I got, depends on what, depends on what bait I'm throwing. But um, a lot of my glide bait style baits or a lot of the baits that I'm throwing that are kind of that one ounce range, I tend to use a seven foot Phoenix. It's actually labeled a heavy extra fast rod. I would definitely describe it as more of a medium heavy power with a moderate fast taper. To me, um, you want a stiff enough tip to be able to aggressively work the baits. But to me on the hook set, I want that thing to flex in the middle of the rod um, to really load up because that transitional power, I think is really gonna help keep those fish pinned. Um, so like I said, I want a fairly stiff tip to work the bait, but I definitely want some bend in the rod. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that are fans of like, extra fast rods personally i'm not a fan of rods that shut off too quickly in the tip i want a little bit more transitional bend to the backbone additionally i'm us usually using uh you know for a lot of my you know let's just say one ounce glide bait type baits you know actually the same goes for the jerk bait you know most of my jerk baits um you know my main line is a 10 pound suffix 832 braid um in my you know my leader i probably vary from a lot of people here but I actually run about 20 to 30 foot long leaders, predominantly of a copolymer. It's a P-Line CXX, 10, 10 pound. It's, um, you know, or a Seaguar and Vizx about a 15 pound. You know, there's sim similar diameters actually between those two lines. But um, like I said, I actually prefer like a 20 to 30 foot long leader. The reason being um, is really just for like a shock absorber. Additionally, you have a lot of like, you know, I guess stealth, you might say in terms of having a longer leader. I don't think that's a huge player, but like, let's just say you're chucking out a glide bait at a fish that's like 90 foot away. Um, I like having a braided mainline so that you have that power and you have that hook setting ability, but yet at the same point you have a built in 20 foot shock leader. And like when it comes to like setting the hook on these things, I like to set the hook hard, bury that hook, stay on the fish hard. 
you know, a lot of times with walleye, like they're going to be moving. They're not really going to take off until you get them off the bottom at first 20 foot. So I like to really lay into them because like, especially with glide baits, uh, walleyes have a real hard mouth and there's all those awkward hooks on a glide bait. A lot of times there's so many hooks that they'll actually kind of impede themselves as you're trying to penetrate the bait. So it's, it's critical to set the hook, get pressure, maintain that pressure, which is why I kind of like that, you know, medium, heavy, moderate, fast, something that bends a little bit deeper into the rod because it's very difficult for that rod to unload. Like it stays loaded on those fish when you're laying into them. Um, you know, and, uh, yeah, I like to lay into them, um, start getting them up off the bottom. Once they get up closer to the boat, usually back the drag off a little bit to allow them to like make that big digging run back down to the bottom. Cause you know, some of those peck fish, especially, I mean, you got 10 pound fish and their tails are like brooms I mean, they're just screaming back to the bottom a little bit there. And, uh, yeah, and that's a little bit on the setup anyways, I think. Well, I'll tell you what, man, we're doing really good on time. I knew that this was going to just blow by. Um, but, um, you know, before we get to the total end, we have time to cover any any other topics that we want to. So any anything else that you want to add along these lines, you know, talking forward sonar, all the things that you've learned? You know, one, one thing I wanted to make sure to, you know, fit in there is kind of three different groups I really wanted to speak to in this. And I, I've been touching on it a little bit, you know, during our conversation. But um, for starters, just like for the people that, might sound kind of funny we're kind of focusing on electronics live scope but for the people that don't have live scope uh, or a fancy boat fancy electronics i mean 10 years ago that was me and uh one thing i really want to encourage you with is really just to embrace where you're at with angling in the moment because a lot of the skills and instincts uh, mechanics that you learn and practice on a daily basis whether you're shore fishing canoe fishing uh whatever it might be are things that will make you for the long run better angler so that you're prepared so like i just think that the most important thing when it comes to live scope is having the proper foundation having you know the passion for fishing having the mechanics knowing how to cast having those natural instincts um from there like for those that actually are about to take the plunge on live scope um you know i think it's just very important as you're about to you know let's just say you're about to drop a bunch of money on a new boat new electronics and a lot of this stuff is fairly new to you. I think it's a very important thing to build the proper foundation once again. So maybe you fished your whole life and like this is your first boat, first fancy electronics. But what I might suggest is to like leave the live scope off. Take like a month where you focus on learning how to like utilize mapping, utilize your 2D, utilize your GPS, utilize your side image, become very comfortable with using those things so that you build the proper foundation. So because ultimately live scope is just another tool. And it's important not to overlook all the other tools on the way to live scope or forward face and whatever. As we learn and grow, I think, you know, being creative with your presentations, uh, like even for example, on peck, like I think it's going to get to the point where like, you know, these walleyes are going to start seeing a lot of glide baits, especially when it comes to like, when you get around tournament time, things like that. Uh, you know, I think really being creative in terms of like presentation styles, going bigger with your presentation styles, uh, not getting stuck on fish that aren't biting not chasing your tail, which is a really easy thing to do with live scope where you just kind of make, you keep making laps on the same fish, being willing to move and to run and to leave fish to find fish, I think is going to pay big dividends. Cause like someone in that lake, there's some dumb fish. I mean, <laughs> you know, so not getting caught up on the same fish, being creative, um, being creative with like understanding your baits, understanding your presentation, being very focused on like learning the ins and outs of your tackle, the drop rates, the glides, your casting. I mean, even like, this might sound dumb, but like 
if you want to get good at hitting fish at 80 foot, set up a target at 80 foot in your backyard and just practice over and over and over again. Um, you know, I mean, uh, you know, um, just really working on the fundamentals, understanding your presentation, understand how those fish are reacting and trying to adapt to that and just being aware of those situations and, you know, utilizing live scope as a tool to, you know, up your game. This is fantastic. I appreciate the time, Josh. Uh, we covered a lot of great things, not everything. So we'll probably have to do it again. Um, and, and just keep going on these topics and, and keep getting updates from you. But let's sign it off right here. Um, after all that, promote yourself. Uh, if anybody ever has any questions or wants to follow along on, on your stuff, uh, what are your socials, your, your YouTube? Uh, go ahead. Yeah, sounds good. I mean, for, for stars, I just want to say, uh, you know, really appreciate you inviting me to, you know, talk on the podcast. I've been listening to it since probably about day one. I listened to the majority of the podcast and, uh, you know, really enjoy listening to them. And, uh, you know, Jason Mitchell has been really one of my fishing heroes, you know. Uh, so it's just kind of an honor to be part of this to begin with. And, right on. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, so I, uh, you can look at my website, fishcastangling.com. Um, you know, I do guide trips on Fort Peck, on Sakakawea. Um, you know, I'd say actually the majority of my interest lately has been people that specifically look me up for live scope related or glide bait related, like <laughs> training, you might say on Fort Peck. Um, so that's actually probably been the majority of my interest. Right on. The majority of the people that I'm taking out. Um, and on top of that, you know, I have, a, I have a little bit of a YouTube channel. I try to put out, you know, content that's informational that will like legit help people. I'm, you know, passionate about, you know, obviously about fishing and, the, you know, sharing that with others and, you know, so that they can make memories on the water themselves. Um, you know, um, you know, I'm very passionate about every little aspect of it from understanding the, you know, the fishing side of it to understand the fishery and like what's going on in their environment. So I really like sharing on all those things, tying them together and, you know, teaching others about it as well. Man, appreciate it, Josh. I'll let you go, man. We've done it here. Sounds good. Thanks so much. All right. We'll talk to you. Yep. The fishing opportunities across the state of Montana are phenomenal. If you're from there or you've already been there a bunch to experience it, you know just how special these opportunities are. If you haven't, fishing out west should absolutely be on your bucket list. But aquatic invasive species like zebra mussels and Eurasian water milfoil can harm recreational opportunities. As boaters, as anglers, we have the ability to help protect Montana's waters by cleaning all mud, plants and debris off our boat, recreational equipment, and fishing gear before we leave any access sites. Drain the water from your motor, your live well, your bilges, and allow your boat and equipment time to dry before your next outing. No matter what watercraft you use, please, if you're traveling in the state of Montana, stop at all inspection stations. Together, we can protect Montana's waters. Visit the link in the description of this podcast for more information. That's fwp.mt.com dot gov backslash AIS.